Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, when he heard that Shieldred might be on Dominaria, he said, wouldn't you think her collection's complete? It's Matt Morgan. So whenever I buy new shoes, I kind of get worried that it's going to express my personality. They're going to be comfortable, but I always know I made the right choice because I can always feel it in my soul. In your soul. You know, the, I, the, inner, the inner me. I, I feel complete. I'm definitely complete. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm searching for a response. I'm just like, oh, you didn't have to run very far to get to that punchline or something. But I just I can never match up. Uh, I can never keep pace with your dad jokes, Matt. You, you surprise me every single episode and I'm never going to get used to it. And frankly, I never want to. That, that's fine. I mean, you don't need any more explanation. There just needs to be that one sole punchline. So. <laughs> wow. Well, that's quite a feat that you pulled off there, Matt. There it is. There it is. I'm going to walk ah. away from this and uh, let, <laughs> let you keep going with the intros. All right. Yeah. I am tongue-tied. <laughs> awesome. Uh, up next, is that some glistening oil on his suit? Nah, it's probably nothing. It's Dana Roach. Uh, why did the football coach dive into the wishing well? Why is that? To get his quarterback. Hmm. It's a sports joke, Joey. It's a sports ball joke. I should have seen that one coming. That was really great. Dana, I it's <laughs> love you too, buddy. I'm never gonna get used to these. And again, <laughs> I never want to. <laughs> anyway, this is the EDH Reccast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Matt, do you mind telling us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode? Well, we recently had a comment on one of our videos asking about the playtest process that we go through when we figured why responding to comment. We can just make an episode about that. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to see the the things that folks in the community are interested in. And this is one of those topics that actually is, um, I think, can be very personal for folks. Like, how do you figure out what's right for your deck and what does that process look like? So, yeah, I'm really glad that um, folks requested this. Matt, I'm really glad that you put this idea forward because I think we can learn a lot because I, I bet that I have a, an idea in my head of how it ought to look. And I bet that your version of that doesn't look anything like mine. And Dana, I bet that your version of that doesn't look like anything like mine either. So this will be kind of interesting. I think we'll probably discover a whole lot in this episode. Real quick, though, before we get into that main topic, we've got a couple of quick shout outs to do. We'd like to thank Chase, a.k.a. Manicurves, for the help with the post-production on the show. You can find them on Twitter at Manicurves. 
And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels. Whether you want to join the Discord community that we have, you want to see all the episodes a day early, there's all that and more that you can do over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. And as always, we still have that amazing patron shout out where we just give someone a shout out just for supporting the show. No matter what level you're at, we're going to give you a shout out. So this week, we want to say a very special thank you to Logan Hodskins. So thank you so much. Logan for all of your support um, I wish I had a, a dad joke about your name but uh, <laughs> uh, I'm no trapper so I don't know my way around skins that well sorry oh oh goodness I there there see again I can't keep pace with that I'm just like oh I did not see that coming that wonderful and Logan Hodgkins thank you so much for supporting the show we appreciate all of you patrons out there it's so so wonderful the support means so so much to us okay fellas let's get into our main show now we are talking about playtesting our EDH decks and Matt how about we just actually throw the topic right to you when it comes to playtesting the deck and figuring out the energy of your deck what are some things that stand out about the process what's the uh, energy that you go through when you're trying to figure out how to make your EDH deck work buddy well i think the first question that i tend to ask myself when i'm playtesting a deck when I'm, I'm going through those first few games is finding out you know what are the important questions that i need to answer before i, I really commit to the deck uh one of the most common questions i find myself asking is when does the deck come online when does it actually start have the engine running uh when is the deck trying to win that's another important question i think a lot of people need to start being able to answer one thing that I've noticed about the online community is the power level con power level conversations. They're really shifting. A one to ten scale kind of isn't doing it these days. And so, one thing that I really like that I know Sheldon Menery has advocated for is instead of giving a number to the power level, it's what what turn are you trying to win with this deck? I think that's a much more helpful way to describe how powerful and strong the deck is. And so being able to answer that question, I think, is something very, very helpful that you will probably want to learn early on in that deck building process. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I usually kind of know in advance, I guess, when I think I'm going to try to win or, or, or what my outs are. But what I try to do in that playtesting phase is figure out whether I was right. <laughs> like, like <laughs> I, I, I go into it with an idea of what that's going to be, I guess. Um, but until you're actually like playing the deck out and testing it out, it's really tough to visualize whether or not that's going to be effective or not. Um, an example of this, fairly recently, I had tried to build a, a Sarvak deck. That's that's the new commander from Baldur's Gate, where it deals damage at the end of a turn based on its power if a, a player didn't have a permanent leave the battlefield. Mm. Um, I, I thought that would be a potential win condition. It's in the command zone. I could, you know, buff up that creature's power, um, prevent people from from doing things in their turn, maybe keep them from from creatures getting killed, having a few fog effects, that kind of thing, and have them take damage as a result of that. Once I actually began playtesting that deck um, and actually trying to see how it worked in the game, I was like, oh yeah, everybody has 15 different treasure makers on their deck, and I'm just never, ever, ever going to be able to like get someone to take a trigger oh, no. where they don't have a thing leave the <laughs> battlefield. So what I thought my win condition was and what it wound up having to be were very, very different things. And that became super obvious in playtesting. Oh, wow. Oh, that is so tragic. I feel I feel bad for that, Dana. But no, that's true. And that's the type of thing that like when you're just 
bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, looking at the commander and like theorycrafting just in your brain, yeah, it might not be immediately obvious. But once you actually get a practical experience with the deck, the treasures are kind of like, oh, oh yeah, the, uh, the 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 dream is just a meme, maybe actually, and that's yes. a practical experience is probably the only way to figure that out. I like the way that you both phrase that too, about like figuring out if you're right. And then Matt, something that you said also made me think about how the process of playtesting really feels like a honing experience for the deck mm-hmm. of like figuring out what is the deck trying to do? When does it win by is definitely a really important component in that. Like, when does the deck go off? But easily also for me, the question of like, how does the deck go off is also super important. When I was throwing together my Baba Lasaga deck, for example, I just threw all of my favorite stuff into a pot for that deck. I was like, oh, is this a deck that I can pull off reanimating a Kokosho several times while also having a Blossoming Bog Beast that will be able to make all of my creatures huge? Is this a deck that can pull off having a bunch of stuff for artifacts and artifacts leaving the battlefield? Can I force a Nadir's Nightblade into this deck if I'm making enough treasure? And the answer to some of those was yes, but the answer to all of those was no. Like, playtesting the deck was the way that I found out that mm, my eyes are a little bit bigger than my stomach and I need to make some cuts here. Um, Another thing I find really useful to focus on during the playtesting phase is to learn the sequencing of your deck. Mm. Um, And and that was maybe not a thing I realized was important early on. It's only been in, you know, the last few years of my commander playing career where I've realized really how important that is and how different it can often be for an individual deck. Um, I mentioned my Sarvak deck. Well, what I wound up doing with that once I realized it wasn't going to work um, with that particular commander was I switched to Jahira, Friend of the Forest, as as the commander of the deck, hmm. and I'm using Agent of the Iron Throne as the background, and, and, and that instead is the win condition. So, so all of the Eldrazi spawns and scions that I was using to make sure I had a way to sacrifice a thing to, to dodge Sarvok's trigger, I'm using to generate damage off Agent of the Iron Throne, mm-hmm. and I'm using Jahira to, to use those things for mana production as well. Um, so I kept the framework of the deck and switched the commanders out. What what I had to learn through playtesting with that deck is because of the way Jahira works, um, and, and Jahira says tokens you control have tap, add a green mana to your, to your mana pool. Well, it became apparent in playtesting that I wanted, if I was faced with a choice between putting out something that made tokens on, say, turn three or casting my commander, I was better served casting the token maker. That way, the next turn, if I cast my commander, those tokens having been in play for a turn could be tapped to produce mana. Hmm. So, so that was the kind of thing I never even really thought about. It just was not, I mean, it's obvious, I guess, when you think about it, but like, I didn't really make that connection until I began playtesting that deck and realized, oh, I want those tokens out ahead of the commander. That way I can utilize them as soon as she hits the field for mana production to then do something else. Nice. Um, so, so that was a big thing. That kind of sequencing is the kind of stuff that, at least for me, I tend to have to actually get reps in with the deck to to kind of find out those nuances. Well, and sequencing, too, is super important. Not just with, okay, do I want to play this type of card first or this? But also, if you have some specific types of interactions, I know sometimes there's a combo in the deck that you you might win through. Understanding how that combo works and being able to pull it off eloquently is pretty important. Like, I can't think of something that maybe disrupts the flow of a table more than somebody kind of, okay, I'm going to try to get this and then I'll do... 
and then they stop and then they pause and they're not quite <laughs> sure what that next step is. Sure. Uh, that's something that I, I know it probably isn't as common anymore because these days information flows. Everybody knows a, a good idea of what a lot of different combos are doing, but still every now and then you'll find one that has a lot of moving parts and you just sometimes shortcutting it doesn't work because oftentimes too, people have interactions. If you're, if you're trying to do something, you're trying to, to combo off. People don't necessarily want to let you do that. So they might try to stop you and interrupt you. So being able to sequence win conditions is also pretty important as if you're looking for just a good and optimal gameplay experience. That right there. I love I love that phrasing on it, Matt, because, yeah, an optimal play experience, like if you're struggling with a lot of triggers, a lot of stuff going on that can feel a teensy bit like a drag, j just a little bit. And it, you're still figuring it out like you you want to make sure that you play the game optimally yourself. You want to make the right plays there. There feels that pressure on you to perform the thing well. But you also want to make sure that you're being fair about other people's time mm -hmm. as well. And so that is one of the the best things to me about playtesting, about maybe solitaring or goldfishing the deck just a little bit about like make sure that i understand how this goes like i play a lot of aristocrats decks for example i just mentioned my baba Lasaga deck i have a conrad deck as well like there are a lot of things that are going to hit the graveyard and then maybe come back out of the graveyard and then maybe i'll draw a card here or dana you have your glissa the trader deck for example and that has so so many death triggers happening all over the board and having a lot of reps under your belt so that you know how to do those things smoothly and efficiently. And if people have questions about them, you're able to answer the exact rules questions about them. That can really grease a lot of the wheels of an actual play experience. And that can make the thing feel just a lot nicer for everyone at the table. It, it's a it's a difficult thing because I don't mean to make it sound like it's a rude thing if you haven't play tested. Like if you're figuring out how your deck works, that is a natural experience for everyone. But like getting a lot of reps in with it so that you know how the deck goes can really help save your own time. And I think a lot of other players will appreciate your attention there is basically what i'm trying to say yeah that, that's a really good point and also board complexity plays a huge factor in this too so uh, not just being able to track because joey you mentioned aristocrats decks and i famously or infamously depends on who you ask <laughs> struggle with aristocrats decks and whenever i play i, I have a, a taste of karlov deck and and if the board state gets pretty cluttered up um, I know I'm just as guilty as anybody of, okay, I want to make sure I'm not missing any of the triggers and everybody I'm sure has one of those decks for themselves that, that they struggle with. And Dan, I know Dana likes to joke that, oh, my, my Gliss of the Trader deck, I have to play that deck early in the night. Otherwise I'm just going to miss too many triggers to make it fun. Yeah. And imagine how many I would miss if I didn't, if I hadn't been playing that deck for like seven years at this point, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> right. I, I've gotten a gazillion reps on it and it's still really easy to miss stuff. So it was, it was way worse in the early days for sure. Circling around to the point about sequencing, though, this kind of emerges in another way, too, not just when you're like dishing out a, a specific aristocrats line or maybe a storm combo or anything like that. But I think it also kind of illustrates for you with more reps in your deck, it illustrates for you which cards are the most valuable to you and when you can time those win conditions. So another deck that I've got recently uh, is the commander commander deck where every single card in the deck must refer to a commander. So a lot of backgrounds, a lot of lieutenants, a lot of familiars, a whole bunch of those cards in the deck. And and playing more games with that deck is the way that I discovered how certain of those cards are actually very valuable as surprises. So for example, there's a background inspiring leader, I think is the name that gives my commanders the ability tokens you control get plus two plus two. And since I have two commanders, I have partners for the commanders in that deck. 
I that means that all of my tokens are going to get plus four plus four. And initially, when I first started playing that deck, I was like, oh, turn three play. All right, cool. I'll just go ahead and run this up pretty early. And as I got more reps with the deck, I was like, wait a second. This is sort of the equivalent to a Beastmaster Ascension in my deck. This is almost the equivalent of like a coat of arms in my deck. This is the win condition. And I don't want other people to know that it's coming. This is the card I ought to play the turn before I kill someone. I should just have a bunch of innocent looking sapperlings on the field, just a bunch of one ones. Maybe I'd have eight damage or something. No, it turns out they're all five fives now. And that is a thing that playtesting also helps illustrate is when you sandbag your stuff too. And that I think is also very important. I think sandbagging is probably the most valuable skills to learn with decks, making sure that you're not you know, throwing out important spells at not important moments. I know, Dana, that's one thing you talk about a lot that I think kind of gets undersold. But knowing when to just hold on to something and not use it until you absolutely have to, mm. that's just that's probably one of the things that I see in the wild happening the most. I'm just thinking to myself, well, you could have won if you just would have saved that one spell for when it really mattered. Don't be the person who who protects the huge threat by playing the slightly huger threat. <laughs> and that's a, that, that, that is a thing I see people do sometimes, where like the thing comes down that everyone is all of a sudden, we need to deal with that. And then, okay, let's try to figure out a, a line to solve that problem. And then someone else plays an even bigger threat the next turn. And you're like, okay, well, now we need to deal with that, which means the previous threat is going to sit there and cause problems. Whereas like, had you waited a turn to let everyone deal with it, then played your bigger threat, it would have enabled your win. Um, but yeah, people do get impatient. I 100% agree that that's a good thing. And, and that is the kind of thing you absolutely can figure out when you're doing playtesting. Yeah, very much, Dana. Like if there's a, a big threat on the table and it's just like, oh, that 2020 over there, well, wait till you see this 2525 or this 3030. It's just like, shoot, now there are two problems. That's a, a fun energy to navigate. And waiting for the removal spells to all be used is also an important part of timing the threats. So yeah, I totally get that one. Another thing that I think is also important here isn't just about the sequencing, though, but like it's also like playtesting is how you figure out which cards you don't want to use or where the holes are in the deck that you're playing. Um, so I, I think I've mentioned uh, Babala Saga a couple of times already, so I'm sorry to keep coming back to her, but she is one of my more recent playtesting experiences. And I had a very sharp playtesting experience when doing that one because my initial draft of the deck just involved a lot of creatures and lands and artifacts because Babala Saga cares about sacrificing permanents of different types. If I sacrifice uh, three permanents, if I sacrifice, excuse me, up to three permanents and there are at least three types among them, then she gives me a whole bunch of rewards and it's really fun. And my first drafts of the deck, I had a lot of those artifacts, a lot of those lands, a lot of those creatures. And playtesting the deck, I discovered, shoot, I'm eating a lot of my lands and I'm getting good rewards for it, but this is limiting the amount of mana resources that I have access to. And I really need to put a lot more enchantments into this deck. Cards like Journey to Eternity, cards like Kaya's Ghost Form, cards like Sanctum Weaver, for example, uh, things with multiple types. And that was a thing that I only discovered by playtesting is that there was a massive hole in that deck that was eating into my mana resources in a way that was fun, but I thought I could make a bit smoother or more efficient. So the gaps in your deck are also a huge revelation as you get more reps under your belt with these decks. Yeah, playtesting um, is really a good way to, to realize I thought Lightning Greaves would be useful in this deck, and now I realize it shuts off two of my spells that I need to target my commander with. And maybe you're comfortable with that, but like that's the kind of thing where you think it won't be a problem, and then you actually start playtesting it and realize maybe it isn't, but maybe it is. I've absolutely run into situations with the Lightning Greaves in particular where I thought it wouldn't, wouldn't be a big deal. Okay, it's going to turn off like one of these one or two small things, but that's a small price to pay to have you know haste and, and shroud. 
And it winds up being a much larger price to pay than you had initially realized. Mm. Um, that's uh, uh, the the most recent example that jumps out to me, particularly. I mean, is is Greaves especially, but there's there's multiple ones. Glasspool Mimic is one of the MDFC cards from that we got back in our most recent Zendikar trip. It is a clone, basically, on the back of a land. Well, that's very very useful. You have a pretty low opportunity cost there. The land comes into play tapped early in the game. Late in the game, you can cast it as a clone effect that that copies one of your things. Um, so I put it in my Silumgar the Drifting Death deck. Hey, I'll copy one of these giant dragons. That's great. Except for in playtesting, I discover, oh, well, like half of my dragons in this deck are legendary because mm-hmm. most of the, they don't tend to print very many black and blue dragons that aren't legends. So I don't have a ton of targets for Glass Pool Mimic. I found myself in multiple situations just playtesting where that card was dead in hand and I couldn't use it. And, and and that became a much larger downside than simply it being a land on one side that came into play tapped. Mm. Um, that's the you know a good example of finding a card that just didn't work in that particular deck by just practicing and getting some reps in. Well, and it's funny too, because we just recently talked about how Glasspool Mimic is great in the new Myrum Dragons deck. Mm-hmm. And so even just depending on the way that certain commanders work mm-hmm. may make, you know, auxiliary cards very, very good or very, very bad. And even though you're doing largely the same strategy, you're doing Teamer Dragons versus Demir Dragons, but Glasspool Mimic gets really bad in the Silumgar deck that you noticed. But also we said clone effects in general are very good in Myrum. So you might be thinking, oh, this is a blue card that goes in a lot of Dragons decks. I probably want it. But then remembering the specific deck too, like that, that's fairly important to keep in mind. Is it good for my deck or is it good just for that general deck and from a bird's eye view? Yeah, I, I love that point. All card quality, if a card is good or bad, is like deck dependent. It's it's contextual. Like a card is never good or bad in a vacuum. And playtesting certainly reveals that. And it reveals those non-bows. Uh, it definitely helps you uh, figure some of those things out for yourself. I think it also can help you reveal redundancies really fast. Um, so this is the thing that I discovered when I was playing my Wilhelt deck a whole lot, and that's the zombie commander that eats a lot of zombies. And that deck was a really fun experiment to me because I don't usually play a lot of tribal decks. And in that deck, I think I've mentioned this on a previous show already, where there are a lot of zombies that pump up other zombies. And I thought that those might be the most valuable cards in the deck, but they weren't necessarily. The ones that were the most valuable to me were actually zombies that have a lot more of a unique effect. Like there's a zombie that gives opponent stuff minus one, minus one, or there's a zombie that gives flying. And those were the zombies that I never wanted to sacrifice with Wilhelm's abilities. But the ones that pump up all of the zombies, those are pretty easily replaceable. So I think that the playtesting also helps you reveal what are the things that my deck already does really, really well, and where could it use a bit more utility, a bit more improvement in those areas. That's a thing that I think is especially uh, a fun revelation once you even just like sitting down, shuffling up with it, and then pulling out one sample hand, you might see, oh, huh, okay, yeah, there's actually, here's stuff that I have a lot of, and here's something that I don't seem to have a lot of as I continue trying more sample hands. These are the things that will be most valuable for my deck. Like, you can play out some, you can get a sample hand and look, what would I be most afraid of losing in this hand? Like, if an opponent theoretically had a thought seize, what would they take that would actually really ruin the strategy I'm trying to do with this deck? And simple playtesting really reveals the, the those cards that are most valuable to you, and they might not be the cards that you expected to be the most valuable to you. Well, and sometimes too, one of those revelations that I have, Joey, is how important is my commander? Not just are there there cards around the commander, but how important is the actual physical commander to the strategy that I have built into the deck? Because sometimes it might be something, you know, in my my Miri Weatherlight Duelist deck, for example. Miri might be nice, but it's not crucial to the game plan. Whereas my Valduck Keeper the Flame deck, 
that deck does not operate at all. It doesn't function without Valdek in play. Right. And so finding out just different interactions and kind of different levels of it could be one or the other and find out where in between your deck is functioning. Yeah, to build on your your point, Joey, how important is the commander to your deck? And and that's something that a lot of people, I think, maybe forget about sometimes. Yeah, um, a good example of talking about Lightning Greaves you know, my, my Silumgar deck, I'm like, well, my commander costs six and my, the deck was very dependent on the commander. I probably should have some some kind of protection. Well, the commander has protection baked in and I'm playing blue. Mm. Like that was a situation where I, I was a little bit concerned about the commander being readily removed. But once I actually got some reps in, I'm like, oh, well, Hexproof does a whole lot of work. Not that I didn't know that, but like actually seeing that, that was almost seeing it as a whole different thing than like thinking it. So I got confirmation that the Hexproof was going to be enough to keep my commander safe and access to, you know, just the handful of counterspells I had for emergencies was also more than enough to deal with board wipe. So like I had, I, I had planned correctly for that, but I wasn't sure until I actually played the deck if I was going to need some other method to keep my stuff safe. I really like that. The, yeah, the commander dependency and also I think sort of tagging on with this is also like how resilient is the deck? Like in the form of like using counter spells to protect your stuff or using heroic interventions to protect your stuff. That is a component. But I think it also like another quality that I like knowing uh, in the playtesting process that I like to discover is like how quickly can this deck bounce back into a game if it gets totally, you know, if if plan A doesn't work at all, how long does it take to get to a plan B or to set up another, like to try plan A once again? A, an example that sticks out to me here is my Mimeoplasm deck. So that's a commander that I love to death and who eats two creatures from graveyards becomes a copy of one of them and gets even bigger equal to the power of the other and so usually what i'm trying to do with that deck is to assemble a really really big uh combination of a creature that's going to be super lethal like i'll have an ukima stalking shadow is the base copy and it'll have a bunch of plus one counters on it equal to a consuming aberration for example so it's a huge unblockable creature and those are really fun but sometimes the deck those might be the only two creatures that i was actually able to pull that would give me any benefit and so when i go to recast maybe a plasm am i gonna have good targets left over i that's a thing that i should probably try and find out during playtesting. how long does it take my deck to fill the yard back up to find quality targets that i would feel comfortable playing my commander once again and that's another thing that is also really important to know like if plan a goes wrong if your deck is really commander dependent and then that plan doesn't work what is your plan b what is your plan c and how long does it take you to get to either one of those yeah being able to jump back from any sort of setback it's it's a pretty important question you have to be able to answer for yourself. And, and are you okay with the results? I know, for example, I, I have my Omnath Locus of Rage deck that that's what the deck literally does is it, it okay, I, I ramp, I ramp some more, I cast Omnath, I ramp some more, and I recast Omnath. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty easy. That, that deck is very, very resilient to any sort of setbacks. But then I have other decks, my like uh, my Alila deck, for example, kind of the other side of the spectrum. It, it benefits greatly like there are some nice things that are happening with all the sagas and everything that i have in the deck but sooner or later i have to actually be able to win and that's where the <laughs> alila deck can sometimes struggle because if alila gets killed two or three times it gets pretty hard to recover from those types of setbacks continually so knowing how to answer that and then what to do about it what how to take that next yeah. step of okay I, I i was set back and like you said joey what's my plan b 
Well, and that would inform to you, like in your Leela's case, if it doesn't have as much resiliency, that might inform the choices that you're going to make. Like you just said, like, what do I do about that? All right, maybe this means that I do want to put more interaction, more protective counter spells, things like that into the deck. Whereas Omnath, if you see that it's super resilient and you can just recast it pretty easy and keep ramping, you might not reach for the heroic interventions to protect the board. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe instead what you're like, I was like, oh, I rebuild pretty well. So instead of putting a heroic intervention into this card slot, I'll put a greater good into this card slot and maybe get some card draw out of it because i'll reset pretty quickly like that can really affect your card choices once you know how does plan b work and how long does it take to get there yeah um yeah you also yeah finding out how resilient your deck is is, is a big one my, my recce history of kamigawa deck is relatively resilient because I, I draw so many cards and <laughs> rebuild itself but, but the, relatively uh, relatively dana i've never seen any deck that bounces back as fast as your recce deck <laughs> relatively that's one of the most resilient decks i've ever seen <laughs> but one of the other things i found in in, in getting play tests with that deck too is the threats changed in a way I wasn't anticipating. I always assumed that Reki would probably be the target because it generates me so much value. But what I discovered was once I get to a certain point with that deck, I've put so many things out and in play that it becomes point. It's like that point in the game where like you don't care about the Rhystic Study because there's just other things to worry about. <laughs> You're like, okay, this person's drawn enough cards with Rhystic Study. I just need to find a way to kill them. Reki kind of does the same thing. We're like, okay, there's just so many things in play that I need to worry about stopping something that's going to kill me versus him drawing a few more cards off Reki. Mm. The the only answer here is player removal. Yeah, and, and that's kind of a thing that I didn't really realize until I played that deck for a long time too is how other players perceive it, mm. what other people see from your deck versus what you think you see. And and that's one that, again, you just got to grind out reps to to – to find out what the difference is between like kind of the the um, Venn diagram of like your perception of your deck and everyone else's perceptions of your deck. Well, and that's something that we've talked about a lot on the show and on on the stream too. Is sometimes I, I know I will think, oh, this is the only threat, but then other people at the table will be, oh, no, actually that that's what I'm scared of. It's something else. Or, or Joey, you will oftentimes say, well, no, actually, I, I think this is our, our my most threatening deck. Mm. And then Dan and I instantly will, no, it's your Sir Conrad. Conrad is <laughs> the scariest deck that you have. And you're like, are you, are you sure? And, and we'll have that dialogue of sometimes your decks are what you have that in the deck that you think is scary is actually something else that, you know, other players are like, no, actually having played that deck, uh, that other thing is is the scary one. So it's it's always funny to see kind of what blind spots you have about your own decks compared to yeah. what your the people in your playgroup will also say. You know, is it, like we said, is the the Sir Conrad the scary thing, or is it the Mimeoplasm, or whatever it is, what, whatever it might be in that situation. It's just it's so funny to hear. I think this is my scariest deck, or I think this is the scariest thing in that deck. Mm -hmm. And then somebody else might say something completely different. And it's just a good way to kind of get get that feedback of of when the deck's actually playing out, does it feel as powerful as it comes across? Yeah, that's a really important thing. Because the, the example there is that I've long thought that my Titania Protector of Argoth deck is my most powerful deck because in playtesting that one, I've discovered how consistent it is. It always feels like that deck is going to do a, it's going to have a big impact on any game that it plays. And it's going to do so really reliably because the whole strategy is able to put a bunch of stuff into play and then put a bunch of lands into my graveyard and then make a bunch of elementals with Titania, maybe give them haste, like dig down, draw a lot of cards with all of Green's card draw 
effects. I've noticed a high degree of consistency while playtesting that deck, and that is not a degree of consistency that I've always experienced with Conrad. And so that is what made me feel like, I think it might be Titania. But that in no way was the perception from you guys. Matt, you're over there holding a fog. Like, I'm not afraid of Titania. Like, the the <laughs> I've got a ghostly prison here. She's not going to be able to attack me. I'm feeling all right. But the Conrad, there's so much damage redundancy in that deck that... If, if anyone kills like two creatures, the, the, everyone takes 10 damage. And I'm a lot more afraid of that. That one is harder to answer. So like, yeah, that perception is a thing that, that yeah, maybe like you said, a blind spot during playtesting. That's kind of funny. Yeah. Now, Dana, you, you might be able to correct me, but mono black decks are good at putting things in the graveyard. I don't know if <laughs> yes, you know this, are. Joey. Um, it's not like you don't have board wipes or just kill spells or anything that's going to make creatures go to the graveyard at all. So I don't, I don't know if you've known that or not, Joey. Sacrifice a bunch of stuff at instant speed, uh, with my viscerous and things like that. Yeah. It's come up once or twice in the little things like that. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that we can teach you how to play mono black decks, Joey. Thank you. I I appreciate it. You're, you're the best play test buddy, Matt. Thank you so much. I do what I can. (laughs) All right. There are some actually blind spots is a really interesting topic that I think would be important for us to continue uh, in the second half of the show. I think that there are some ways in which playtesting can sometimes pull the wool over your eyes a little bit. That would be fun to get to. But let's actually take a brief break and pause for challenging some stats. There's so much data on EDHREC, but you know, we don't always agree with it. Sometimes we think that cards see too much or too little play. So we really love to challenge the stats on the EDHREC cast. Dana, do you mind starting us off this week? What's your challenge? Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. My challenge was brought to us by listener Gabriel GS in our Discord. Um, Gabriel would like to challenge the card Grave Consequences from Judgment, particularly for decks that care about exiled and exiling stuff like Sir Conrad, for example, Joey, Ooh. or Umbra Sphere Manifest as well. Um, Grave Consequences is an instant for one in a black. Each player may remove any number of cards in their graveyard from the game, and each player loses uh, one life for each card in their graveyard after that is after that resolve. So anything you don't remove dings you for damage. You also draw a card after you cast that spell. <laughs> so Gabriel writes that um, it's pseudo graveyard hate that can also be a finisher and it cantrips itself. So if you're desperate to try to find an answer, you can use it to just, just to dig down. You can use it to finish people off. You can use it to solve a problem if you need to. It is a really versatile card, especially in something like Sir Conrad, where I absolutely do not want to see Joey running this this at all in any way shape or form <laughs> it's currently only in 222 decks in edh rec and uh this this card is also brought up by a recent tweet by shivam but um did this card as one of his random scryfall cards today which is where gabriel first saw it but yeah that's a really excellent card in sir conrad decks and i don't think joey has room for it but <laughs> it, 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 it's it's very effective and i can definitely think it needs to see more than more play than just 222 decks 
That's always the tricky thing with Conrad. Do I want cards to just leave the graveyard or do I want them to leave the graveyard to go back to the battlefield? Sure. But yeah, this is funny tech against graveyard players and potentially for graveyard players. So this is this is spicy. I could certainly uh, tinker around with this, maybe play test to see how it works. Um, I'm really into it and I'd never heard of this one before. So dang. Yeah, the ver the versatility really is what is what sold me as well. Yeah. The fact that you can use it for a lot of different things um, helps a lot. Yeah, fun stuff. Matt, how about you? What's your challenge? So my challenge this week actually is going to be one that I think people are playing a little too much of lately, and that's going to be in these Elminster decks, which is one of the Planeswalkers that can be your commanders from Baldur's Gate. So it's the Azorius Planeswalker. And there's the abilities that I'm kind of keying in on that I think make this card a little, um, the card that I'm challenging, I should say is the the ability that Elminster has of whenever you scry the next instant or sorcery spell you cast this turn costs X less to cast, where X is the number of cards looked at while scrying this way. And then you can also use Elminster's plus ability to draw a card and then scry too. So it's got a little bit of a, a way to have a cost reduction in your command zone. But the card that I want to challenge here is Sigiled Starfish. So Sigiled Starfish is one in a blue for a 0-3 that has one ability just to tap and scry one. Now, if you look at the typical deck, a lot of people are kind of taking it two different ways, whether you want wanting to scry a whole bunch or you want the flyers matters because Elminster's ability, you are able to make 1-1 one, one flyers. So there's a lot of stuff like Safara's Skyblade and other flying matters types of cards in there. So when you look at the deck, there's just not a whole lot of room for what kind of amounts to a curious homunculus in the deck. Hmm. It, it's you tap and scry one, and then you reduce the cost of the next instant or sorcery you cast by one. Now, I don't really think that's worth a card slot when there's already a, a ton of creatures that are going to scry for you. But also if you're looking for a blocker, the whole deck makes blockers. You have whether it's <laughs> Talrand, the sky summoner, or goodness, there's a whole army of just things that you can be making, A, that are going to be flying, but also that are going to be able to scry themselves. Augury Owl, I think, is a great addition to the deck because mm. that also flies and benefits and you get a big scry there. So I think what is almost kind of a mana dork only for instance and sorceries with half of a card advantage engine built in, I just don't think Sildred Starfish is what you want to be doing in decks. 31% of Elminster decks are playing this. Yeah, the, the scry is nice, but also I think there's just... There's a lot better cards going to be doing more than just one specific thing. And Sigil Starfish, just it, it's not for me. I'm sorry, folks. I, I feel that. I, I could see its utility as a blocker, but you're right. The deck makes so many other things that would be like blockers that also block evasively. Mm -hmm. And in terms of stuff that helps you scry every single turn, there are a lot of enchantments that help you scry every single turn. And those will stay on the battlefield a lot better than a creature will to give you perpetual value. So, yeah, this, this is a tough one, but the it's got so many sickness that like yeah no mm, i i i really do feel you on this one yeah i mean there's just a lot of competition in this type of deck and you, whatever you're doing you can you can do it better and also like this is a real bad late game draw Ooh, also very true. Yeah, that's very true. All right, I'll move to my challenge now. And so this is actually the first show that we're recording right after I have gotten back from the Command Fest in Bellevue. And that was a super fun weekend, really fun experience. And while I was there, I had the pleasure of playing against the cosplayer Anna Margaret at the Command Fest, who had a really rockin' Giada Font of Hope Angel Tribal deck. So I currently have angels on my mind and mono white on my mind. And while I was going through Giada's page, 
page, I couldn't help but notice that the card Brave the Elements is only showing up in 27% of Giada decks out there. And there's like over 3,000 Giada <laughs> decks out there. So this, this feels like a, a card that needs to go up quite a bit. Brave the Elements is the one mana instant in white that says choose a color and white creatures you control gain protection from the chosen color until end of turn. This is like... This is one of my favorite mono white spells just ever. It's it's just it's so good and it's only one mana. Bravely Elements will help you survive a card like a blasphemous act, for example, because you wouldn't you would stop the damage. It helps you protect your commander from single target removal spells by giving protection from the color of that removal spell. It can help you defend against someone's oncoming army, or it can make your stuff unblockable because if you've got protection from blue, for example, blue creatures can't block your white creatures there. This spell is really good. It feels to me like one of the reasons to play mono white so i really think that mono white decks should play it a whole lot more than just about a quarter of the time if you're playing giada this is a one mana spell that i think will provide you a lot of utility out there so give it a look yep it's probably probably worth a consideration at the very least at the very least all right, guys, now we can get back into our main topic. And Matt, we had just uh, left off on a topic about like some blind spots that can occur when you're playtesting. And I think that that's a really valuable thing to keep digging into because th- th- this is a an important thing for me. I think that there are certain decks that are going to be better at the playtesting than others. There are going to be, maybe to say this better, there are certain decks that are like really hard to playtest, especially if you're like goldfishing. So when I was building the Tasha deck, for example, that's a commander that cares about playing your opponent's spells. And if you're just like goldfishing with it, you're never going to know, like, you can't imagine what spells would I get. I don't have actual opponents to play against. Or if you're trying to build a Gaunti deck, for example, like playtesting and stuff can certainly help reveal to you, like, what your sequencing needs to be and tricky rules interactions that are good to know. But actually, like, getting cards from your opponents is the only way to inform how that deck will work. Or Xanathar is another example. These are all cards, commanders that care about playing your opponent's stuff. And a playtesting experience, it's probably going to be a lot harder for those decks to playtest than almost any other thing out there. So I feel like that's another example of the blind spots that we were talking about earlier that is probably important to mention here. Yeah, I would argue that the more interactive your deck is just with your opponents, just being present at the table even, the more interactive your deck is, the more important it is to just not just play test, but just play the deck. Because, I mean, that's hmm. that's part of play testing is just playing it and just seeing what it does in action. Um, and I would argue that 99% of players, if you just tell them, hey, I'm not really sure how this deck is going to play. I've only just built it or I've only played two games with it. I'm still not really sure what it does. Most people aren't going to mind. Most people, okay, cool. Let's Let's see what it does. So yeah, just being able to just get reps in and especially with, like I said, the more interactive decks, the decks that rely on your opponents doing something. Uh, I know for sure I have a deck like that, my Council of Four deck, which kind of depends on my opponents doing more things so that I get to do more things. Well, I don't know what they're going to be like because I can't just do that against air. So I need to actually <laughs> play the play the deck to further understand what the deck does. Well, so I guess that maybe leads us into talking about goldfishing a little bit. The G word. Which is a form of playtesting, I guess. Is that is that something that you like or dislike when it comes to playtesting, Matt? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to lose some listeners here. Um, I'm going to get a lot of comments. I Uh-oh. think goldfishing is probably one of the most overrated ways to playtest. If you're just sitting there and just playing games with a deck by itself, I think very, very rarely are you actually learning anything helpful. 
I know it, huh. it's very, very different from, okay, I'm going to draw an opening hand and I'm going to draw another seven and just kind of get a, a feel for what your opening hands look like. That's one thing. But if, especially if you're playing more interactive decks, goldfishing and just playing a game by itself, I, I think very rarely are you actually getting anything helpful from that experience. You could be doing many other things and, and spend your time better. Hmm. Um, so I, I goldfish a lot before <laughs> so, so I, I, I disagree but I, I i don't disagree with your point uh, um I, I do a ton of gold fishing before i even get to the point where i play test a deck with people but i think the, the important thing is you set your expectations correctly about what you're going to gain from that experience because I, mm. I you're absolutely correct there's a lot of things you are not going to be able to replicate or you'll replicate incorrectly um, if you're just gold fishing out hands and, and, and playing them, whether you're doing it with actual cards or I, I tend to use any of the goldfish simulators on, on deck builders um, to, to do a lot of my gold fishing, when you do it, you have to have to know what you're looking for. Um, you know, if you're going to your family reunion because you want to hang out with your uncle, that's probably going to work. If you're going there looking for a date, <laughs> it's going to be way less effective, I would imagine. <laughs> Um, what? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. What is, what is maybe that's a regional, I guess. But at least where I'm from, that's that's a, a, a terrible idea. So, so that that's what? the important thing I think for goldfishing. You have to go into it with your expectations set about what you're trying to accomplish. Um, you know, the first thing to look for is you're like at least for me, I'm always trying to see what my mana base looks like in in how often it's going to enable me to do what I want to do with the cards that I have in my hand. Like for the mm. most part, that doesn't matter what my opponent's doing, whether or not I have the appropriate amount of pips to consistently get my commander out and do something with it, or, or at least get out the ramp spells or get out whatever I have in the deck. That's something I'd spend a lot of time looking for. And that's when you find out things like, does that tainted land cycle not work in my deck because I don't have enough swamps or... You know, okay. do, do, does this check land consistently come into play tapped because I don't have enough basics? We're 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 seeing a theme here with with me in regards to enough basics working because I because I lack lack the amount of basics, right? <laughs> like those kind of things are, are are one of the first things I start looking for. Um, so, so I I do think there's a lot of value in gold fishing, but I do think it's a it's a specific data set you're looking to gather, and I think it, if you aren't sure of what you're looking for, I think it can be a waste of time for sure. Yeah, I, I just, where, where I see a lot of players commenting on goldfishing is, oh, well, I goldfish the deck and I go off on turn X. I Like turn six, I combo off. Well, okay, but you, but you're goldfishing air. There was zero interaction. There was nobody attacking you. There was nobody interacting with your board state. So if you sit there and play 10 games by yourself and you, you, you realize, okay, I'm going off on this turn, that's not helpful because there's zero interaction. There, there's no... You're getting to sit there and do only your thing. You're not worried about anything else at the table. And that does not happen. That literally, like, you sit down and you're playing a game with three other people who also are trying to do their thing. So it, pretending that you're you're able to combo off or you're able to swing for lethal, well, that doesn't take into account what blockers they have. Like, there, there are so many variables that sitting and playing a game with zero variables it's not an effective way to get a feel for the deck. Now, if you're looking, like I, like you said, Dana, and, and I, I can appreciate the specifics of what you're looking for, but a majority of the time when I see people referencing, oh, I goldfished the deck and, and it does this, that's not something that's going to actually happen in a real game because they're taking out literally every variable 
and and trying to apply it to what they're trying to figure out for that 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 gold fishing experience. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. I don't know that I was prepared this episode for Matt's hot take about gold fishing, and I definitely was not prepared for Dana's weird metaphors about uh, <laughs> meeting uncles and stuff like that. Uh, but like, yeah, I I also enjoy gold fishing. There's something about discover like it helps me discover the mana curve of the deck. Like here are certain times when I feel I'd want to play the commander, or am I able to cast it reliably? It helps me discover like sometimes the win conditions, or if there's a specific aristocrat's line, I really like having multiple reps under there, and I like knowing that that type of information before I go play against other people, so that I can save time. Sort of like we mentioned earlier. I think what I like to do is. Over time, I enforce more pressure onto the deck. This is, I think, how I kind of navigate that, because you're right. If I am pretending, I suppose, that like the, the deck has faced zero interaction, then yeah, that is not actually actionable data. But over time, as I'm trying to perfect the deck and not just figure out what cards should go into it, but how should the deck play, I do like to be more critical in my pretend goldfishes, in my pretend, uh, my, my sample hands and my sample playing things out. I sort of apply more pressure by imagining, okay, let's imagine that the commander immediately gets countered. How do I bounce back? Let's imagine that the commander lasts for exactly one turn or only one round. Do I have reliably protective stuff that I'd be able to feel comfortable playing them on the turn that I usually want to play them? That kind of thing. Uh, that kind of thing. And it sometimes helps me find some of those weaknesses in the deck as a result of that by doing a goldfish where you pretend that everything that could go wrong does and seeing can your deck resist that type of thing too. So I, I still find a lot of valuable in that, but maybe that falls into the specificity that you said. But also then too, are are you building up, um, if you're extra critical and you're hypercritical maybe sometimes, just because I know you, Joey, and I, I know how your brain works sometimes, <laughs> are, are you sometimes putting obstacles in the way that aren't really there? And that's another point that we've talked Ooh, about several, several episodes before is we're imagining these problems that we have to solve that aren't actually ever going to happen. And, sure. and so mm-hmm. I think sometimes too, you, you can project issues that are going to come along with the deck that maybe you don't yeah. need to. And you, you overthink the problem and, and you put in answers for questions that aren't ever going to be there. Yeah, okay. I, I mean, absolutely. No, Goldfishing is never going to be able to deal with this the sheer amount of variables that you can come up with. And I right. no, you're, you're right. If you try to get too far in the weeds, you can probably do more harm than good. Um, but again, I think if you keep your focus on something, th- things that are kind of vague and predictable. So an- another w- example of that, one thing I tend to look for is, do I feel my deck has enough draw to consistently be drawing mm. cards by like, say, turn five or turn six? Well, you can kind of mm-hmm. goldfish that out. You can, how often am I drawing a draw spell? Now, if someone counters that, well, someone counters that. You can't do anything about that for the most part. But what you can control is how how frequently you see that draw spell. And sure. let's say that the draw spells you're running are like the the village rights or costly plunder variety that you're planning on, you know, sacrificing tokens to. Well, do I consistently have I consistently drawn enough token makers to maybe put a couple tokens out that then I can sacrifice to those spells? Like though those kind of things you can kind of get a feel for, I think, particularly over the first four or five hands of a goldfishing game. Do I have enough ramp? Well, I didn't, you know, I, I, I goldfished out, 
five different turns and I did this 15 times and I was only ever seeing one mana rock or, or one ramp spell. That's probably not enough for my six mana commander. I need to put a couple more in there and then you do a few more reps and like, okay, now I'm consistently seeing two of those, sometimes three of them. That feels way better to me. So, so I do think that there is value in that, but I, I, you're a hundred percent correct. You can wind up spending way too much time in your own head looking for data sets that you can't replicate and then start finding patterns that don't exist and aren't any use to you. Yeah. Well, and like I said too, checking out, you know, this is what my typical opening hand looks like. I'm going to draw seven and do that a few times and maybe check out a, like a draw or two, but that's also something you see in every single game too. And, and like Joey said, if there's, if there's specific like lines in the deck that you want to make sure you're proficient with, I even said at the, you know, earlier in the show, make sure you're familiar with, combos and, and inter specific interactions in your deck but that's much different than sitting down and playing a full like 12 turn game by yourself yeah um, it's like what people who play competitive league of legends say you know you, you don't need to worry about a specific matchup when you're both level 15 because very rarely does that actually happen but everybody gets a lane phase in league of legends everybody has right. those yeah. first eight minutes of the game that you can get very good at and, and you can do that specifically and so that's kind of what I think applies to Magic and Commander specifically is you're always going to have those first two turns that are going to roughly look the same. So if yeah, if you play out those first two turns like you were talking about, Dana, very different than I want to make sure that my Elminster deck knows exactly how to play against Glissa the Traitor right. in turn 15. <laughs> like that, that's so specific. That's probably A, never going to happen. And B, it's just not a productive way to spend your time. Okay, that, that's that's fair. And I guess this kind of does circle back around to some of those playtesting blind spots as well. Like, because again, there are some of those things that are difficult to do in playtesting. Like, we all know that Ristic Study is a very, very proficient draw effect. But if you are goldfishing, you have no idea if people are going to pay the one. Like, <laughs> right. when you play Ristic Study and you're goldfishing, do you imagine that it's a Phyrexian arena that definitely draws you an extra card each round? Or do you imagine that it draws you three? Or do you imagine that your opponents are uh, very practical and you draw nothing off of Ristic Study? How critical are you with that? that that's difficult to figure out. Just like it's dif difficult to figure out how to, like, goldfishing with a Gaunti deck is, is very hard to do because you don't know what you would rip off the top of other people's decks. And there are ways in which this can, like, a method of playtesting can sometimes blind you to what the actual weakness are in your deck. And this is the thing that I experienced when I was building my goad deck with Karazakar the Eye Tyrant. Karazakar, I love this deck. I super love this deck. But playtesting it did kind of pull the wool over my eyes when I was trying to, you know, put the whole deck together and see what its sequencing is. Because Karazakar says, uh, whenever you attack, it'll tap and goad an enemy creature. So that's really cool. I make my opponents attack each other. And when my opponents attack each other, uh, that opponent loses life and draws cards. And so do I. And playing that like in the goldfishing sense was really fun, but very difficult because I could never figure out exactly how many creatures there would be that I could goad. And so that was a little bit hard. And I thought that I had done a good run of it when I was, you know, crafting out the curve and stuff like that through goldfish tans. But what I didn't realize <laughs> when I, what I didn't know until I actually started playing the deck is how much life that strategy makes me lose just constantly. Yeah. <laughs> I did not realize I'm sometimes losing like six life per round because my opponents are attacking each other so often. And that's really good. And I'm drawing a lot of cards, but I went like four games losing to my own Karazakar triggers <laughs> like before I was like, okay. So it turns out lifelink is definitely a deeply important component of this deck. I need to gain as much life as is possible because this commander's effect is very potent 
but it's also draining me in ways that I did not anticipate when I was there theory crafting it by myself. Playing actual practical experience was the only way that I could figure out just how deadly and just how much fire I was actually playing with. I mean, and that's a problem that I came across with my newest deck, my my Raga Draga deck, where I get to play all those scions and everything that, that get all the, the abilities because they do have mana ability. So they get Raga Draga's plus two, plus two. It's so cool. So I, I, I could look at the deck and, and kind of like what Dana was talking about. I kind of had an idea, okay, I'm probably going to start coming online and looking like a threat at turn five, but I also didn't know when I was going to be able to close the deal. So if you look, so there's a very, very big, big difference between looking like a threat and acting like a threat and being able to be the threat. Mm. So yeah, I, I have some big creatures out there, but if they have any sort of blockers, I don't have evasion really in that deck. And so I was finding, okay, I look scary in the first few games, but I wasn't actually able to close games out. So there's a huge difference. And so that's just something you can't really see like when you're goldfishing, like, okay, how many blockers are people going to have? Or Joey, how many times are opponents going to be attacking each other instead of me? Mm -hmm. How much life am I going to lose? Those are just, there's so many things that you can't really account for in the playtesting experience when you're just doing it by yourself. So just playing games and plus playing games is way more fun than sitting there playing by yourself, playing with people. Like it's just. (laughs) It's more fun. Sometimes you have to wait until Friday for game night, though, Matt, and you want to know what the deck does before you get there. <laughs> so so play, so just set up four different decks and just run around the table in a big circle. <laughs> what? <laughs> don't, don't act like you've never done that, Joey. I can, I can verify that. I've certainly never done that. I don't run around don't, tables. Uh, you, now you're just lying to us. Now you're lying. What? I've, I've definitely never done that, Matt. Never. You d- never. D- Dana also has definitely never built a murder board like Charlie Kelly and Always Sunny. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I've never done it with a table, but I've absolutely brought four separate screens up with, with windows <laughs> up with, with four different decks and like played it that way. I've do- I've definitely done that. That is devotion. Well, well, was it was it a Grey Merchant Asphodel deck? That's de- that's true devotion. Yeah, then I definitely true. Was, de- yeah. <laughs> It was my it was my Anax deck, so then yeah, the devotion mattered. Okay, there it is, there it is, there it is. Oh, wow. Well, well, Joey, before we lose any more devoted followers because I I besmirch <laughs> goldfishing your your decks when you first build them, why don't we just wrap this episode up and uh, we'll save all of our following? Uh, of course, no, no, like that's that that was a hot take from you, Matt. It's true, but you know what? I think it's important to be critical of all of the aspects of the process to really examine them closely is actually a better way to say it. Like to really see what is the value that you're getting out of the stuff because the fact is that it is complicated. Um, and we each have different approaches to it, and that is an important approach that I'd really never considered. And I'm happy to learn from you about it. And Dana, I'm happy yeah. to uh, learn from you too. And so it's it's very fun, even if I wasn't always prepared for the hot takes. Uh, it's nice. It's nice. I'm. I'm trying to keep pace again and it's fun to, to figure those things out yeah well so. you you know since I, I i you i love nuance so if i take a hard stance you know it's it's for for good reason i hope it's for good reason at least i hope so too let's, uh, let's hope let, we, we we hope uh, uh, star wars a new hope even yes and dana i hope that this is also <laughs> the case for for you as well but I'm less sure about that one. let's just hope dana's not revenge of the sith <laughs> I'm just glad I can continue to impart wisdom onto the two of you. (laughs) Thank you, Grandpa. We appreciate it. All right. With that, we're going to call this episode to a close. Fellas, if our listeners uh, would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us all? (laughs) 
So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over twitch.tv slash EDHRETCAST, where we have guests on every single week. The games are always a blast. So make sure you tune in because it's it's just such a fun, fun time. Mm-hmm. And Dana? Oh, you can find me on the Twitter <laughs> My sciatica. Oh, granddaddy Dana. At, you can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. Uh, you can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Recast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Chase for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Mana Curves. And listeners, we would also love to hear from you about your experiences, tips, tricks, and nuances that you discover with the playtesting experience. Let us know in the comments. Reach out to us online. We would love to hear from you. And we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights but until then remember edh wreck your deck before you wreck your deck hey have you ever used cheapo air for years and i really like it with cheapo air you can book online use their app or even over the phone They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.